Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. New York Times bestselling historian H.W. Brand's latest book is called Heirs of the Founders, the epic rivalry of Henry Clay, John Calhoun, and Daniel Webster, the second generation of American giants, tells the riveting story of how in 19th century America, a new set of political giants battled to complete the unfinished work of the founding fathers and decide the future of our democracy. H.W. Brands is uh, Jack S. Blatton, Senior uh, Chair of History at University of Texas at Austin. He writes on American history and politics. His books include The Man Who Saved the Union, Andrew Jackson, The Age of Gold, and T.R. Several of his books have been bestsellers, too. Traitor to His Class and The First American were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. He lectures frequently on historical and current events, can be seen and heard on national and international television and radio. And interestingly... I uh, follow this often, H.W. Brands, your haiku history, the American saga, 17 syllables uh, <laughs> at, at a time. Uh, welcome back to the program. Delighted to be with you. Uh, so I pulled it up, your Twitter account, at H.W. Brands. Um, interested in your Sunday special. Um, a lot of Benjamin Franklin r- lately. Uh, the Sunday special, though, is history is a realm in which human freedom and natural necessity are curiously intermingled. That's uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, why did you choose that one? Over the years, I've been collecting quotations on history by various people. And a lot of them reflect on this, this very same point that Niebuhr makes, that in human history, in human actions, part of it is what we ourselves choose, and part of it is the context in which we find ourselves in. And in fact, that's the consistent problem for historians when they're trying to figure out what the past means and whether it means anything for the present. Because everything in the present is like something that happened in the past, but it's not identical to things that happened in the past. And so the question, and we never know until it happens, is, are the similarities between now and the past more important than the differences? And that's just why we have to wait for the things to happen before we can tell which is which. Hmm. And as I mentioned, uh, a lot of the tweets recently have been about uh, Benjamin Franklin, including the one today. Another wrinkle, Ben has been catting about he's knocked up a girl. It's Franklin to, his, to be a father. Um, uh, I want to read an, another one here. Uh, is he coming back? Is he even still alive? No one knows for sure. Uh, Debbie and Limbo. Uh, so you, you wrote a book on uh, Franklin, uh, the first American. I wonder if you could just spend you know, a couple of minutes uh, there before we jump into the heirs of the founders. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so the first American, um, and I think that's a, a kind of a common idea. You you share that, and if so, why? I'm, kind of quintessential American. Yeah. Well, I called the book the first American for a couple of reasons. One is that I intended the book to be, and it eventually did become, volume one in a series on American history that consisted of biographies. And I've known, I've observed for a long time, that even people who don't think they're interested in history can often be drawn in by a biography, because a biography is the story of a life. It's not dry dates and facts and stuff like that. And so I had in mind that I would write this history of the United States, but do it in the form of biographies. And Benjamin Franklin was volume one in the series. And as a historian, I'm trained as a historian, look on the past as a historian, even though I was under the guise of a biographer, I have this question that I ask myself. So what's the big thing that happens during the lifetime of this individual? And to me, it was, I thought of it in terms of tasks of generations of Americans. And the task of Franklin's generation was forging an American identity, because Benjamin Franklin was born an Englishman, but he died an American. 
And so the question is, how did that transformation take place? And Franklin was one of the very first of the American colonists, as they considered themselves at the time, to come to the conclusion that America had to break away from Britain and to form its own nation, because Britain was getting in the way of America's further development. During the course of Franklin's life, Pennsylvania, his home colony, and the American colonies generally, had grown dramatically. Their economies had developed dramatically. They were acquiring all of the hallmarks of a modern nation. But they were subordinate to Britain, and the British weren't smart enough to figure out that the Americans would make great partners within the empire. Now, the British took the view that the Americans always had to be subordinate, and this is something that Franklin finally concluded that the United States, as he began to think of it, uh, could never stand, at least not over the long term. So Franklin became one of the first to think of himself as an American. He used to write home from Britain, where he was agent for several American colonies. He said, I'm too much the American for getting along with the British here. And so Franklin is the first. And he also becomes sort of the the archetype of the self-made American, poor boy makes good, who has all of the features that Americans pride themselves on having a sense of humor and ability to adjust to changing circumstances. Franklin, of all the founding generation, is the one who most has a twinkle in his eye, the one that you'd most like to sit down and have a beer with. Kind of hard to imagine sitting down and having a beer with George Washington. He didn't mm-hmm. do that kind of thing. But Benjamin Franklin, yeah, he's your guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I guess if I were sitting down with Washington, from what I've read about him, I'd I'd be I'd be interested, but I'd be worried about his temper. Apparently, had a volcanic temper that he worked all his life. He to, did to, and, to overcome. And Washington Washington lived at a time when it was acceptable for members of the gentry to hold themselves aloof from ordinary people. And Washington made a point of doing that. Thomas Jefferson, who was a member of the Virginia elite as well, was less that way, but he just sort of couldn't help himself. He was always the sort of the philosopher on his mountaintop at Monticello. But Franklin was, having been born one of 15 kids, and they grew up poor, and had to make his way in the world. So he was he was somebody that Americans over the generations have been able to identify with in a way that was really hard to identify with Washington or Jefferson or Madison. As a biographer, I was interested in reading, um, it's a series in the New York Times, and they, uh, they got you as well, uh, the series of questions and what you're reading. Uh, I was very interested in, in, they asked you a question, what's your favorite fictional hero or heroine? You replied, in life, I don't believe in heroes. Only people who sometimes do heroic things. The same people inevitably do unheroic things. That's what makes them uh, human far more interesting than any heroes. Uh, so is, is that how you approach biographies? You're interested in the, in the human, in these uh, people who are sometimes made out to be icons? Oh, definitely. I, don't, I make a point of not trying to make a hero out of the people I write about. And, and this really does reflect my belief that if you go looking for heroes in history, you're going to be continually disappointed because nobody is a hero 24-7. People do heroic things, but they also do quite ordinary things. Sometimes they do things you just can't understand. Sometimes you do things that make them, that cast them in a very unfavorable light. It's the nature of humanity. We're all that way. And this is what happens when one generation sets up statues to people, 
and other generations come along and say, yeah, but how about those other things that they did? And now that statues have to come down, and it arises from this idea, and it's, it seems to be inherent in human nature to look for models. Well, models are fine unless you think that everything they do is worth modeling. And that isn't the case for anybody. So when I approach my biographical subjects, I choose people who were important, and I try to explain why they were important, but I also try to explain who they were as individuals. And so I also make a point of not rendering judgments on behalf of my readers. So I don't tell readers to think, this is how you should think about Andrew Jackson, or this is how you should think about Ulysses Grant. I give readers the information on which they can form their own judgments. And this because a judgment of someone in history has less to do with the information about that person's life than with the values that the person making the judgment brings. So if you think that, if you think that promoting the interests of the working class of America is a really big deal, then you probably think that Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal was a good deal. On the other hand, if you're a conservative and you're worried about the growth of government power in the United States, you might think that the New Deal was a bad deal. And I don't, in my book on Franklin Roosevelt, I don't render this judgment. I don't say that the New Deal was a good deal or that the New Deal was a bad deal. I do try to make the case that the New Deal was a big deal, and anybody trying to understand America in the 20th century needs to come to terms with it. How they view it, or they think it's a good deal or a bad deal, says more about them than it does about Franklin Roosevelt or the New Deal itself. And that's up to them to determine. So one more thing before we jump in here. Uh, I was very interested in this article in the New York Times. They they ask you if you had an all-time favorite author, and you mentioned one of my favorite authors. So, you know, I I was uh, giving you a high five as I read this, Barbara Tuckman. Oh, yeah. So Barbara Tuckman is, she still is, one of the best narrators of the past. And her book, The Guns of August, on the origin of World War One, is just a gripping read, as well as being very sort of learned in how all these pieces of the European puzzle fit together. And her book on the Pacific Theater in World War II, told through the story of General Joseph Stilwell, Stilwell and the American Experience in China, is the book. And it's a wonderful account of both what the Pacific Theater was like and how complicated the diplomacy and politics was between the United States and China and various other allies. And that sort of gets at, as we mentioned just briefly earlier, the thing that makes history so appealing to me is precisely its complications. And the deeper you dig, the more complicated things are. And... I think that's the way the world is, and that's how I like my stories. There are people, of course, who take the opposite view, that they like their stories crisp and clean, and here's the hero and here's the villain, and you know the two shouldn't intersect too closely. I'm afraid I disappoint them, because I like the complications, and the complications are what make history, I think, compelling and also accessible to ordinary people, because we all know that our lives are complicated, none of us 
has a particular theme to our life. We just live the lives as best we can. And from day to day, we have to make decisions. And sometimes the decisions hang together in a broad pattern. More often, they just, well, we do what we can under the circumstances in which we find ourselves. By the way, uh, Tuckman was not part of the Academy. He wasn't a professor. I, I don't know if there are any, um, is there any heartburn that you hear from <laughs> professional historians? You, you're a professor, um, uh, you know, a really good writer, but, um, but not, not a member of the Academy. Well, there are those who would say that this is not the kind of work that a specialist needs to take account of. And that's perfectly true and quite legitimate. And this is, again, something to keep in mind, and I certainly keep in mind as a writer. As a writer, you need to know who you're writing for. And if you are a professor and your specialty is European military history in the 1910s, Barbara Tuckman probably doesn't tell you anything you don't already know. But she's not writing for you. She's writing for people who don't know all that stuff. I teach history at the University of Texas. I also teach writing. And with my, it's a graduate writing workshop, and to my graduate students, I explain, you need to keep in mind who you're writing for. And some of my students are writing dissertations. I say, okay, you're writing your dissertation. You know that's a specialized audience you're writing to. And keep that in mind, because there are things you need to tell them that you know they don't know. You need to deal with aspects of the historical literature and all that stuff. That's what specialists do. But on the other hand, if at some future date you're writing for a general audience, the general audience is not interested in what the debates among the historians have been, and they're less interested in the details of your sourcing than they are in whether you can tell a good story. And so... I've written for specialists, but I also write for general audiences, for people who maybe, well, in the case of my current book, maybe they remember hearing the name Henry Clay from high school, but they don't remember what exactly he stood for or what the issues were all about. So lately, I, I tend to write more for the general audiences than for the specialists. Mm. Well, let's, uh, let's take a break, then we'll jump into to the book, interesting, fascinating book, uh, The Second Generation of American Giants. Heirs of the Founders is the title, and we'll talk about Henry Clay, John Calhoun, and Daniel Webster. The problems they grappled with, many parallels to today, and the author, H.W. Brands, is our guest for the hour more following this break. Hey, I'm Ali Hassan, in for Tom Power. In her new memoir, Oscar winner Sally Field takes us from her childhood in Pasadena through her glittering years on Broadway and in Hollywood. What might surprise you is the insecurity that has dogged her in even her most triumphant moments. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. This afternoon at 1 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. This guy was big, man. Seen the movie Grease when they don't look like high school kids? Mario was like that. People would, people would come to say he's a teacher, right? Like, no, he's a ninth grader. And I, I knew that sooner or later, I was going to be one of his targets. Join us next time for the Moth Radio Hour. True stories told live from the Public Radio Exchange, PRX.org. Saturday evening at 6 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're uh, diving into history today, and uh, we'll be looking at parallels to today as well. New York Times bestselling historian H.W. Brand's latest book is called Heirs of the Founders, the Epic Rivalry of Henry Clay, John Calhoun, and Daniel Webster, the second generation of American uh, giants. 
So H.W. Brands, I've been reading a biography of uh, Abraham Lincoln. Um, we think of him as a Republican, which of course he was. Before that, though, he was a Whig, and I learned uh, he was a great admirer of Henry Clay. He was. Uh, uh, Lincoln was born in Kentucky, and Henry Clay was a longtime resident from Kentucky. He was Kentucky's outstanding statesman and role model for anybody who was entering the legal or political profession. So Abraham Lincoln, when he discovered it himself that he wanted to be a lawyer and then a politician, looked to Henry Clay as the model for how one should conduct himself. It helped also that Henry Clay was a founding member of the Whig Party, which was Lincoln's original party. So there was a natural affinity. And when Clay died in 1852, Abraham Lincoln gave a eulogy for Clay in which he described Henry Clay as the beau ideal of the statesman for his generation. You can understand a whole lot about Abraham Lincoln if you learn about Henry Clay. So, uh, first of all, what did the Whigs uh, stand for? And, uh, and then uh, maybe we could talk a bit about Henry Clay. Well, the first thing that they stood for was really that they stood against Andrew Jackson. So, Henry Clay originally was a Jeffersonian Republican. And this was the first Republican Party, the one that opposed the Federalists of Alexander Hamilton and John Adams. So the first American party system was the Federalists against the Republicans. But the Federalists faded away as a result of their opposition to the War of 1812. And for about 10 years, there was only one party. And they called themselves Republicans, then they called themselves National Republicans, and then they split into sort of more National Republicans, but the Democratic Republicans who became Jacksonians. And Henry Clay's principal opponent in his whole political career was Andrew Jackson. And these were both men of the West. In fact, before Jackson burst on the scene with his victory, his utterly surprising victory at New Orleans in 1815, Henry Clay was the rising star of the West. He was from Kentucky, which in those days was considered the West. Jackson was from Tennessee, also considered the West in those days. So Henry Clay thought that he had been the first the first Westerner on the scene, the one who had devoted himself to politics. And he always felt a certain resentment that Jackson was getting all of this credit and all of this press merely for having won this battle, which was fine for a general, but didn't really prepare him to be a president. Nonetheless, Jackson became the favorite among many Westerners, and he became head of the modern Democratic Party. And they called themselves Democrats starting in the 1830s. And the Whigs set themselves up in opposition to the Democrats. The Whigs in those days were the party, they tended to be the party of wealth. They tended to be the party of business. They tended to be pretty much like the modern Republican Party. So the, the party of the establishment, the party that was opposed to populist notions. Now, I suppose I need to correct this a little bit in the days of Donald Trump in the Republican Party, but let's say in the, the pre-Trump Republican Party, that was they held positions similar to a lot of positions of the Whigs. And Henry Clay was the founder of, one of the a few founders of the Whig Party. Uh, you mentioned Trump. I was just going to go there. Um, so uh, I think uh, several people have presented to President Trump, uh, hey, you know, you're a populist like uh, Andrew Jackson, and, 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 and Trump has uh, embraced that at, at various points. What, what do you think Trump is trying to—is it populism well, that he's trying, to, he's trying to take that mantle? Well, he certainly is. And I've been asked about this. Are there similarities between Donald Trump and Andrew Jackson? And my response is that there aren't very many similarities between the two men as individuals. Andrew Jackson was a military hero, 
Andrew Jackson was a man who believed in honesty. Andrew Jackson was utterly devoted to his wife. Andrew Jackson was someone who put the interests of the country ahead of private interests. Andrew Jackson was one whose finances were as transparent as can be. So at a personal level, there aren't too many similarities. But the important similarity, the more important similarity than whether they're in whether as individuals they're alike, is that the people who elected Donald Trump are a modern version of the people who elected Andrew Jackson. These were people who felt that the establishment was tilted against them, and their vote for Donald Trump, like the vote for Andrew Jackson, was a protest. It was a finger in the eye of the established political classes. So in that respect, they're I guess you could say that there is a parallel between Trumpism and Jacksonism. Hmm. Um, I, I wonder if we talk a little bit about the presidency. I'm, I'm not sure if that. You know, I think the presidency wasn't as powerful then, but still was a prize for ambitious men. It still was men at that time. Uh, all three of the men in your book, uh, current book, desperately wanted the uh, the presidency. None of them made it, and I'm sure that they had some envy for some people that they considered perhaps less talented than they, who ended up being president? Well, you hit it just right in saying that the presidency was a prize, but it was less important than it is today. So the age of Clay, Webster, and Calhoun, and the listeners, the dates are basically the first half of the 1800s. They all enter Congress around 1810 or shortly thereafter, and they serve until the early 1850s. This was the golden age of Congress. This was the age when the legislative branch held the initiative in American politics. This was by the design of the framers of the Constitution. The Constitution describes the legislature, Congress, in Article One. Article One is the longest and the first of the articles. And it's very clear that the framers intended that Congress would be the driving force of American national politics. The presidency is described only in Article 2. It's called the executive because it's supposed to execute the will of Congress. And that was indeed the case through American history up to the beginning of the 20th century. There were a couple of really important presidents in the 19th century. There was Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln. Jackson really more for what he represented, the, the entrance of the ordinary man into politics than what he did as president. There are a few decisions that he made, but on the whole, he was willing to be the executive. Lincoln's a, a separate story because of the Civil War. But in the 19th century, Congress did indeed take the initiative. Congress wrote budgets. Congress proposed compromises to deal with difficult issues. Presidents simply waited in the White House for Congress to pass a measure, and then the presidents would usually sign it. On those few cases, vetoes were unusual in those days, but when they didn't sign it, then they would not sign it, and then Congress perhaps would override the veto, as as Congress often did. So it's indeed true that Henry Clay and John Calhoun and Daniel Webster each tried to be president. I differ a little bit with your characterization where they said they desperately wanted to be president. They wanted to be president, but they understood that they would be judged positively on what they had accomplished in Congress, probably more than what they did as president. And there's a reason that 
even for students of American history, trying to remember all the 19th century presidents is a bit of a chore. Now, when exactly was Franklin Pierce president? And, and what did Millard Fillmore do? And John, was it John Tyler or Zachary Taylor? It's easy to get them confused because they were not memorable. And again, this is by the design of the framers of the Constitution. Henry Clay never became president. He's, he holds the distinction, uh, he shares the distinction with William Jennings Bryan of being one person who was nominated by a major party and ran for president three times and lost all three times. And in the case of William Jennings Bryan, who had the misfortune of living in, of living into the early 20th century, he's remembered essentially for losing. Because by the 20th century, if you don't become president, you can't be a great figure in American politics. But in the 19th century, the fact that Henry Clay lost three times to the presidency, hardly diminished his stature. When he died in the early 1850s, people understood that one of the greatest figures of American politics had just died. And it was a, it was a very different time. The circumstances were quite different than they are today. And there are reasons why things changed. The, the principal reason is that the United States developed a first full-time foreign policy in the 20th century. This is something the framers of the Constitution had not envisioned. Europe was far away, and Asia was even farther in the 1780s, and they just could not imagine a time when the United States would be engaged on a daily matter with the affairs of the rest of the world. Now, in the 20th century, that happened, and presidents are the ones who, even by any reading of the Constitution, the ones most responsible for American foreign policy. And that's when the president, as the center of attention of American politics, comes to the fore. But in the 19th century, it was still Congress. Yeah, I guess my my adjective uh, desperately... um or, or my, my adverb, uh, desperately there. Uh, maybe I'm uh, being colored by the perception today. It seems like uh, you have to have fire in the belly. That's the common conception, right? You, you, you have to want this, the presidency yeah. above all things, to, be, to even run for it because of the gauntlet and, and maybe because of the increased uh, importance of the presidency. Right, and also to sort of put it in another way, where I said that pre- um, presidents of the 19th century, many, many of them are quite unmemorable. It's hard to imagine a great figure in the American Senate or the American House of Representatives who never rises beyond that in the 20th century, simply because they no longer have the influence that they used to have. And so, you know, you can be Mitch McConnell from Henry Clay's state of Kentucky, but nobody ever is going to confuse Mitch McConnell with a towering figure of American politics in the 21st century. The, the most recent person who might have uh, looked like that was Lyndon Johnson, who was majority leader of the Senate in the 1950s. And he had a Henry Clay-style idea of what a Senate majority leader does. But of course, he went on to become president, and he's remembered now mostly for what he did as president instead of what he did in the Senate. Now, these, uh, I, I want to go on to Calhoun and, and Webster, and then talk about the work that they, that they did, these compromises, the, the, the unfinished business. A big piece of that was, uh, what is the union? What is, what is the government? And also slavery. And they were able to get some big things done, uh, even against existential crises. Uh, you think about Congress accomplishing that, let alone you know, um, solving shutdown of the government today, uh, it, it, you kind of despair oh. of the direction that we're going in. Oh, there's no question about it. If Clay, Webster, or Calhoun came back today, they would, they would be utterly dismayed 
at the inability of the American political system. They would blame Congress primarily because Congress has abdicated so much control of the presidents. They blame presidents as well for not even being able to keep the government open, for heaven's sakes. What an embarrassment. But the fact of the matter is that they, they did have to deal with really big issues. And, and indeed, one of the, one of the ways of uh, interpreting the problems that we have today is that, you know, really, there aren't huge issues that confront the government of the United States today, that confront the people of the United States, issues that, if they're not resolved, the country will break apart. Yeah, we have issues over immigration, and we have issues over health care, but the fact of the matter is that those aren't crises. These are chronic situations that are going to have to be dealt with sooner or later. This is why both parties can get at this impasse and bend themselves out of shape and the country as a whole over relatively minor minor things like, can we keep the government open this week or next week or whatever? But in the earlier time, in the era of Clay and Webster and Calhoun, there were huge issues. And the, the, the two huge issues were the unfinished business of the founding generation, of the Constitutional Convention, in fact. The inspiration for this book on Clay Webster Calhoun, the second generation of American leaders, is it comes from the closing line of my biography of Benjamin Franklin. This is the very last line of the book. Franklin has been attending the Constitutional Convention of 1787, which has been held in secret. And he comes out, and he's accosted by a woman of Philadelphia who recognizes Franklin and says, Dr. Franklin, what have you given us? All your work there behind those closed doors. And he said, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. So the contribution of the founding generation was American independence and the establishment of this republican government for the United States. But Franklin understood, as did the other members also coming out of the Constitutional Convention, there were some issues that were left undone. And those dealt primarily with, first of all, what exactly is the nature of the relationship between the states and the federal government? When push comes to shove, who goes first? Or to put it another way, this new federal government, what happens if it oversteps its bounds? Who will rein in the federal government? Is it going to be the Supreme Court? This is the conclusion we've come to, but nobody thought that back then. Is it going to be... Uh, the executive? Well, no, because the executive was sort of a creature of the, the legislative branch. Was it going to be the states? This was something that had to be debated. And the reason it wasn't definitively written into the Constitution was that the people who wrote the Constitution, they were practicing politicians. And they knew if they made clear that if the federal government oversteps its bounds, the states can step in, then they would alienate the big states. States like Virginia and Pennsylvania and New York, the, the ones who were who felt hogtied by the existing government, the Articles Confederation, where tiny Delaware or Rhode Island could veto any measure of the federal government. They had come to Philadelphia to create a strong national government. So they didn't say that the states could stymie the federal government. On the other hand, they didn't want to say explicitly that the federal government can ramrod its ideas over the states, because in the small states, would refuse to ratify the Constitution. So they kept their mouths shut. The Constitution is silent on that issue. The second question was, what do we do about slavery? Everybody understood that slavery was utterly antithetical to the idea of a republic, that political power emerges from ordinary people, and even more antithetical to the promise of the 
Declaration of Independence, which although not part of the Constitution, really was the founding charter of the United States, and that is the, the statement that all men are created equal. What do we do about that? They knew that almost nobody at the Constitutional Convention, nobody, in fact, nobody at the Constitutional Convention liked slavery, but some of them thought it was a necessary evil. But they also thought that it was going to fade away. It was already starting to fade away in the North, they figured they'd start to fade away in the South. So let's not make a big deal out of this. Let's just kick that can down the road and let the next generation deal with it. And this was Franklin's challenge to that next generation when he said, a republic, if you can keep it. He was speaking to the likes of Henry Clay and Daniel Webster and John Calhoun. Uh, so the uh, what we know from, from this period is a series of these great compromises. And they're essentially just trying to, you know, I guess you could call it kicking the can down the road as well, eventually civil war. Um, but, but the fact that they were able to come together and bridge huge divides in these compromises is, is impressive. So it was an age, it was a golden age of Congress, but it was also an age in which compromise was considered an honorable undertaking. This is actually reflective of the fact that if Congress, if this elected body of a whole bunch of people is your primary initiator of politics, then compromise is necessary. Because if you have 60 senators, as there were by the middle of the 19th century, they don't all have the same point of view. And they're all chosen by their own states, and they have a right to their differing opinions. And the essence of compromise is the acceptance that your political opponent is not your enemy. Your political opponent has a right to his point of view, and to a seat at the table. And furthermore, that the laws, the reforms, the compromises that last are the ones in which both parties, all major senators, have a stake in preserving them. If you happen to have a temporary majority, it's no good, it's counterproductive to try to ram your views down the throats of the minority, because one day you're going to be in the minority. And so, the reforms that last, the compromises that will have staying power, are the ones that everybody buys into. Now, because they're compromises, they don't make anybody deliriously happy, but they neither do they make anyone so unhappy that they'll knock the compromise table over the first chance they get. Now, today, compromise, in many circles, that's a dirty word. Uh, with deleterious yes, effects, <laughs> in my view, yeah. anyway. Uh, what what, uh, what has changed? Well, a couple of things have changed. One is that the American politics has become more influenced by the media than it was in those days. And so for to sell newspapers, to sell ad time, commercials on television, it makes a lot of sense to play up the competitive aspects, to treat politics as war. Another part of it is that the political parties have become sifted out in a way, uh, sifted out philosophically in a way that they hadn't before. So in Henry Clay's time, the, the Whig Party had a northern wing and a southern wing, and it consisted of northern manufacturers, it consisted of southern planters, and so the political party had to accommodate the views of all these people. There's another aspect as well, and because of the diverse coalitions that made up the parties, party discipline was less important, was less strong than it is today. So if you observe both voters and members of Congress today, 
they may talk at some time or another as though Republicans have different views. But when it comes right down to it, Republicans vote Republican and Democrats vote Democrat. And that's just the way it is. Um, the, the parties have much greater power than they had. As I described earlier, in Henry Clay's lifetime, there were, well, two and a half party systems. So the first party system, the Federalists and Republicans, that one dissolved. And then this new one was being created during the second half of his life. And so during much of that time, there was no party that could impose the kind of discipline that parties impose today. And so I think that the, I, I should add, by the way, that the age of compromise in Clay, Webster, and Calhoun's lifetimes didn't last beyond their death. And so it was an age of compromise to the early 1850s is when this generation of compromisers, and I reiterate that to be called the great compromisers, Henry Clay was, that was a compliment in his day. In our time, it would be an insult. It would convey that you don't have the courage of your convictions, the arrow waffler or something like that. But in Henry Clay's time, that was considered an, uh, a compliment. But he died. And in the almost decade between his death in 1852 and the early 1860s, that spirit of compromise died with him. And so the two political parties, the two sections, were taken over by the extremists, the extreme abolitionists in the North and the extreme slavery apologists in the South. And so when that spirit of compromise died, the Union was in grave peril. I'm sometimes asked to draw connections between then and now, and I'm not predicting that a civil war is going to occur, but I do worry that we have reached kind of the modern equivalent of the 1850s when the spirit of compromise is no longer being held in any kind of respect by anybody. And if this continues, if in fact people in politics, ordinary folks, voters, if they do look on their opponents as their enemies, as seems to be increasingly the case, then the idea that you can sit down and hammer out a compromise with those folks that you've been calling enemies, it makes it that much harder to do. It's as though you're compromising with the devil when you get to that point. The, the jeopardy then was war. What do you, you say, you know, I don't think we're going to go to war with each other, but what, uh, what are the dangers if we lose that sense, and, and if increasingly uh, politics is weaponized, as it seems to be today? Yeah. Well, it is very hard to imagine, thankfully, that there would be a civil war in the United States in the 21st century. However, it's not out of the question that the kind of polarization, the kind of sectionalization that was observed in the 1850s and 1860s could recur. And one scenario would be something like this. There is now a reliable conservative majority in the Supreme Court. Almost certainly, the issue of abortion will come before the Supreme Court again. And it's certainly not out of the question that the Supreme Court could overturn the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that asserted a right to abortion. So if there's no longer a right to abortion, then states are free to write the laws as they want. And some states certainly will restrict abortion, perhaps outlaw it entirely. Other states will want to have more liberal abortion laws. And there will be a certain sort of geographic sorting out as people who don't like the more conservative restrictive views might be inclined to move to places where there are more liberal positions and vice versa. Until abortion is in some ways the modern equivalent of slavery in that at its base, it's a very moral issue. 
and people look at it in deeply moral terms. Slavery was sectional by the 1850s, and if you add the moralization of an issue and sectionalization, so all the slaveholders were in the South and all the abolitionists were in the North, then you could get a split of a country. Now, at the moment, abortion isn't like that, but imagine that Roe v. Wade's overturned. And imagine that the anti-abortion forces, for example, decide, you know what, we could actually try to outlaw abortion nationwide. Then people, let's just say California, which takes a more liberal view of abortion and abortion rights, many Californians could say, as Southerners said after the election of Abraham Lincoln, you know what, our rights are simply no longer safe in this union. California is a state with a big enough economy that if it were an independent country, it'd be the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. So Californians might reconsider whether being part of the United States is a good deal or not. Would they? Would there be a California version of Brexit? I don't know. And if there, if something like that did happen, would this give rise to an attempt by other parts of the country to force California to stay in the unit? I don't know that either. But I do fear that we're moving in that direction. And, uh, of course, Texas, where you are, um, you know, you, you hear about secession every once in a while, but, uh, uh, yeah, that would be a, that would be a, a big fight. Let's take another break when we come back uh, more on Heirs of the Founders, the epic rivalry of Henry Clay, John Calhoun, and Daniel Webster, the second generation of American giants. That's the latest from New York Times bestseller H.W. Brands, who joins us for the hour. More following this break. This week in This American Life, Will got some news that most of us will never get. His ex-wife was making a movie, a little indie movie, about a couple a lot like them that got divorced. His biggest fear? The thing I was the most afraid of is that the movie would portray me accurately. Will watches for the very first time with us this week. Saturday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. If life is a play in three acts, the final act is often the best. Whoa, I'm 53 <laughs> years old. I say, is my life half over? Holy smokes, like that concentrates the mind. Maybe it is time for me to reckon with this question of who am I really? How to embrace and celebrate the third act. Next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRX. Sunday morning at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us. We've reached our last segment with H.W. Brands, New York Times bestseller, um, author of uh, several uh, books. And the latest is Heirs of the Founders, the epic rivalry of Henry Clay, John Calhoun, and Daniel Webster, the second generation of American giants. So, H.W. Brands, we were talking before the uh, break about uh, how these great compromisers, it was a compliment at that time, uh, Compromise of 1850, for example, and others, they were able to at least delay the, 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 the great question, the great questions. Uh, did power lie with the states or with the federal government? And uh, what about slavery in a republic? Um, uh, brings up a question that's often been on my mind here. Um, I'm interested in your response. Was, was, was war inevitable? Was the Civil War inevitable? Could, could they have, you know, if, if a new generation of great compromisers had arisen, uh, could it have gone in a different way? Um, and, without uh, sexualism, polarization that, that did uh, eventually overtake all these compromises. Well, I'll tell you what Henry Clay thought, and I tend to agree with him on this subject, although neither of us can tell. 
because we're imagining things that didn't happen. But Henry Clay's belief that, Henry, it was Henry Clay's belief, that holding the Union together was absolutely essential for the future of American democracy, for the future of America's experiment in self-government. And he thought that anything that threatened the Union was going to threaten that. Henry Clay, although a slaveholder, opposed the idea of slavery. This is something that's hard for modern Americans to get their heads around, but he was a slaveholding emancipationist. And he did, throughout his entire career, he worked to end the institution of slavery because he believed it was bad for the slaves, yeah, and it was bad for slaveholders, and it was bad for American democracy. But he also understood that not everybody agreed with him, and he also he understood that under the Constitution, he and other opponents of slavery had no control over slavery in the states. That was reserved to the states, and Virginia would continue to have slavery until Virginia chose not to have slavery. And this is why Henry Clay thought that the abolitionists were right on the issue, but they were counterproductive on the politics of it. And this, again, is something that is is often hard for modern observers, modern students of this era, to appreciate, because pretty much everybody in the United States now is agreed that slavery was an abomination. And why didn't they just wipe it aside? And the answer is because they couldn't, because the Constitution said that you couldn't. Georgia gets to have slaves until Georgia says there's not going to be slaves. But Henry Clay believed that Georgia and Virginia and South Carolina would, on their own, come to conclude that slavery was a bad deal. Massachusetts had come to that conclusion, and New York and Pennsylvania, and the only difference, Clay thought, was that their economies had modernized sooner than the Southern economy. And they had done it of their own volition. And when people do things of their own volition, they're much more, they're much happier with the outcomes than when something is imposed upon them. So Henry Clay, the great compromiser, held the union together in 1820 when the issue was, should Missouri be admitted to the union as a slave state? And Henry Clay said, yeah, but in exchange for that, the northern part of the Louisiana Purchase will be forever free of slavery. And during so for the next, this is 1820. The next big compromise over slavery came in 1850, when the question was, what's going to be the future of slavery in the territory, the New West, taken from Mexico in the war with Mexico? And again, it said that California, in this case, is going to enter the Union as a free state, but in exchange, the South is going to get a clearer statement of the responsibilities of the northern states on the Constitution to return escaped slaves. Henry Clay understood that people were very upset with both of those compromises, but he believed that if the Union could hold together, the country would outgrow slavery. The North had already outgrown slavery. The South would outgrow slavery. And I happen to think he was right. I can't prove it. But if you think about this, in 1800, in 1800, every country in the world, essentially, allowed slavery and really didn't think much of it. In 1900, no country of the world outside of, well, Saudi Arabia didn't yet exist, but a few places still allowed slavery. But essentially, slavery disappeared from the world in the 19th century, and only in the United States, and the partial exception of Haiti. Um, Did it require a huge war to end slavery? What happened? 
gradually the world discovered that modernization is antithetical with slavery. Henry Clay believed if the Compromise of 1850 would have the lifespan of the Compromise of 1820, the Missouri Compromise, if the Compromise of 1850 could hold the Union together for 30 years, then slavery would have disappeared from the South by then. The Industrial Revolution would have moved South, and industry requires a flexible workforce. Slavery is many things, but it, it provides an utterly inflexible workforce. Now, I can't prove that Henry Clay was right, but this was his vision, and this was a way of avoiding the Civil War. So I don't think that a Civil War was inevitable. I don't think it was necessary to end slavery. It is the way things turned out very unfortunately. It had unfortunate consequences, not only for the 700,000 people who died, quite obviously, but its long-term consequences with emancipation forced upon the South by the North, I think it delayed anything like an acceptance of civil and political rights for African Americans. It pushed that back to the 1960s. Imagine if Southern states had, of their own, come to the conclusion, you know what, slavery has outlived its usefulness. Well, then they would have had every incentive to integrate, quite literally, the former slaves into the workforce and to make them part of the civil polity. But they didn't. They were they basically spent the next hundred years refighting the Civil War. So I don't think a civil war was inevitable, and I think there could have been better ways of ending slavery. We just have about uh, two minutes left. Uh, just very briefly, I want to talk about uh, communication. Uh, these men, uh, uh, Daniel Webster, of course, is very famous for being a great orator. Um, you know, the, the, the people would uh, mark it on their calendars when he when he was going to stand up and speak. And, and maybe compare and contrast that just very briefly to uh, today, where it seems like the most effective form of communication comes in 140 characters. Yeah, it was the golden age of political oratory, certainly in the United States. And this because things like modern media didn't exist, but also because the institutions of American politics were still evolving. They were immature. And decisions were made, important decisions about the nature of the Union and the meaning of democracy and the possibility of compromise over slavery. These issues were actually thrashed out on the floor of the Senate. And when Daniel Webster stood up to give a speech and talk about even issues like well, an issue that, when I was writing the book, seemed to be far in the past, the tariff. This was one where people listened to them speak because their minds were still open to change. Decisions were made in response to these speeches, decisions within the Senate and decisions on the, in the minds of the American people. Decisions are made in American politics today, but they're not made on the floor of the Senate. They're made in committee rooms. They're made in response to pressure from lobbyists, that made in response to the demands of party discipline. So as institutions mature, decisions move away from the personal more to the institutional. And this is why political oratory is no longer the big deal it once was. Another thing, we've got many other forms of entertainment. Political oratory was in those days as much a form of entertainment as it was an avenue of enlightenment or edification. Well, the book, well worth the read, uh, Heirs of the Founders, the Epic Rivalry of Henry Clay, John Calhoun, and Daniel Webster, the second generation of American giants, the latest from New York Times bestseller H.W. Brands, who is professor of history at uh, University of Texas at Austin. H.W. Brands, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Delighted to talk to you. 
And I uh, hope you'll join me uh, tomorrow. We're going to be talking folklore. Uh, USU, as you may know, is a Center for Digital Folklore. And we'll have uh, a couple of folklorists on to talk about the latest trends, the top 10 uh, trends in digital folklore, including, you may have been seeing this roundup of me voting in 2016 versus me voting in 2018 tweets. Uh, all of that to come. Uh, fun topic tomorrow. Hope you join me. Thanks for listening today. Hey, it's Luke Burbank. This week on LiveWire, Dan Savage and his love-hate relationship with the Internet. You know, they talked about the end of net neutrality, and they kept saying that it would end the Internet as we know it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I see the upside. Like, Internet probably brought us Donald Trump. That's this week on LiveWire from PRI. Saturday afternoon at 4 on Utah Public Radio. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, including musical performances, festivals, live theater, art shows, dance, educational or guest lectures, workshops, volunteer opportunities, and more. We have a more user-friendly submission page. Just visit the UPR website at upr.org and click on the community calendar link. There, you can review the submission guidelines. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas and action. Online at utahhumanities.org. Utah Public Radio is everywhere you are with news, information, and musical programming statewide via our six transmitters and 30 translator signals. Worldwide on the web at upr.org and through our new online app. UPR is only a push of the button away. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and UPR.org.